We're going to be looking at chapters 37 and 38. As you turn there, I want to mention another opportunity to give and bless a local ministry. Uh, we support the New Life Center. You give to the New Life Center already uh, through your tithes and your gifts each Lord's Day. Uh, but they also do each year a baby bottle campaign. And so that's what these bottles are for. We have them at the welcome desk there. Uh, these are an encouragement to fill them up with your loose change or $100 bills or whatever you'd like to put in the baby bottle and then uh, bring them to the church. Or you can actually drop them off directly at the New Life Center. The address is on there. Um, but they have limited hours, so we'd be glad uh, we collect those here in our safe and then take them over as well. Uh, this is a way to bless that ministry, just as an example of how this goes. We, during our vacation Bible school, encouraged our kids to bring their loose change. Uh, we had buckets up here instead of uh, bottles. They competed by age grade, and they raised almost $1,200 for the New Life Center just during that week of VBS. So if you would pray uh, for this offering opportunity and be a part of that. Uh, today, as I mentioned already, we're going to continue in the book of Exodus. We're now at a point where uh, God's people are putting into place His commands to them, and they are building the tabernacle. We started looking at that last week. We'll continue to today. In fact, I've put uh, for you there in your worship guide uh, a picture of the tabernacle. I realize some of the font and things are pretty small in here, but uh, this will help us in our study today to give you just a, a picture of exactly what it is that the people were building, and uh, hopefully you can keep that for your reference uh, because it helps us to kind of piece together all that God's doing here among his people and it also helps us to see how this relates to the gospel today. Uh, there are lots and lots of details in Exodus 37 and 38 about the tabernacle. Uh, we have already read many of these details as we went through Exodus 25 and 26 and 27 and so I'm not going to read all of this passage today. In fact we're just going to start off looking at the first nine verses to kind of give you a picture of uh, see, people are excited about the tabernacle already. Uh, just to give you a picture of what it is God is doing here. So if you'll stand together out of reverence for God's Word as I read this for us. Exodus chapter 37, beginning in verse 1. This is what God's Holy Word says. Bezalel made an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half was its length. A cubit and a half was its breadth. A cubit and a half was its height. And he overlaid it with pure gold inside and outside and made a molding of gold around it. And he cast for its four rings of gold for its four feet, two rings on its one side and two rings on its other side. And he made poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold and put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark. And he made a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half was its length and a cubit and a half was its breadth. And he made two cherubim of gold. He made them of hammered work on the two ends of the mercy seat. One cherubim on one end and one cherub on the other end. And one piece with the mercy seat, he made the cherubim with its two ends. The cherubim spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings and with their faces to one another. Toward the mercy seat were the faces of the cherubim. If you would pray with me. Father God, we do come to you in Jesus' name, and I imagine for many of us we come to you with a list of measurements and unfamiliar things as we consider the tabernacle today. It is easy for us to glaze over these words and this passage, not stop and consider how they apply to us today, and so Father, we need the help of the Spirit in this process. And so Father, I do pray that your Holy Spirit would help us to focus and understand and 
and seek to see how this applies to our life today. I pray, Lord, that even as we look at the description of an age-old box covered in gold, that we would see the gospel and respond to it. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. I did not read all of chapters 37 and 38, but if you were to read them this morning, you would see that they remind us of many details we've already covered. We first received God's instruction back in Exodus 25 and 26 and 27 about the tabernacle. And there God gave very specific things that needed to be in the tabernacle. In fact, as you go back and look at that passage, we find in Exodus 25 through 27 that the Lord says, you or they shall make 42 times. And so in essence, you can almost picture a book of instructions and there are steps 1 through 42. And in them, God says, do this, do this, do this, do this. Very precise instructions about how God wanted the tabernacle and everything in it to be created. And then we come now to Exodus 37 through 38. And we find not just a reminder of what God had already said, we find the application of what God had already said. We find now people are actually obeying God and doing what He said. In fact, when you look in these chapters, you see that Moses records the words, He or they made 64 times. So the people didn't just go through that list of 42 things and check them off. They were very specific to make sure they went over and above to do exactly what God said. Here's the point. Here's the principle this reminds us of. It's not enough just to know what God commands. We must obey. It's not enough just to memorize the Word, read the Word, hear the Word. We need to obey the Word. And what we have that often gets lost at the end of Exodus is the act of obedience of God's people because they understood that God was teaching them through these instructions concerning the tabernacle. And my hope and prayer for us today is that God would teach us through this building of the tabernacle as well. And so let's begin our study then with the first point there in your outline. We see that the tabernacle teaches us that God desires to dwell with His people. God desires to dwell with His people. That was the point of the tabernacle. When we talked about this last week, it's easy for us to get lost in our study and see the tabernacle and later the temple is a place for ritual sacrifice and to forget that foundationally, the reason that God gave them instructions for the tabernacle was so that He might dwell among them. This was all about God's presence being among His people. That's why in Exodus 25, verse 8, we read this. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. And so if you look at this graphic, this piece of paper there in your worship guide, you see here God's dwelling. You see here the place that God would dwell among His people. Now the size of it, you can see there on that handout compared to a football field, it's about a fourth of the size of a football field. And where it would be would be in the middle of the camp. So if you picture this large area where God's people would set up their tents, where they would camp, and the very center of it would be this courtyard and this tabernacle, and everybody's tent was facing towards it. And so it was at the center of all things in the life of the Hebrew people as they were going through the wilderness on their way to the land of promise. 
And at the center of it was this courtyard, and there inside the courtyard was this temple, and there inside the temple was this holy of holies, and that was the place where God's presence would dwell. It was a reminder to God's people then, it is a reminder to us now, that God desires to dwell with His people. I mean, think again of creation. I call our attention back to this often because so often we we miss this connection. There in creation, God creates all things. He creates Adam and Eve for His glory so that He might dwell with them and they be His people. And He creates there this sanctuary of the garden, this holy place where He will walk among His people. And they're able to dwell there with Him and He with them until what happens? Until they sin. And then they're removed from God's sanctuary. But up until that, they didn't need a tabernacle. They had the presence of God there. They didn't need a lampstand to remind them of God's light because the light of God was there among them. They didn't need all these things in the tabernacle to point them towards God because they were in the very presence of God. But what we see happen there in creation is Adam and Eve's sin and they're removed from God's sanctuary. They're removed from the garden. And then you think about just how quickly things fall apart. I mean, this starts in the garden with disobedience to God. The actual act that they did was they ate fruit they weren't supposed to eat. But soon after that, think of all that comes. Murder, deceit, wickedness, evil runs rampant. We see God's grace still among His people. He's seeking to provide them a way of salvation. But what we don't see in the early chapters of Genesis, after Adam and Eve are removed from the garden, is we never see man seeking to recreate a sanctuary in order to worship God. In fact, what we actually see is man seeking to build a sanctuary to bring glory to himself. And we see this in the Tower of Babel. Genesis chapter 11 tells us that the nations are gathered there together and rather than seek to worship their Creator God and acknowledge Him, they seek to build a temple, a sanctuary, a structure for their own glory. Genesis chapter 11 verse 4 tells us this, Then they said, Come let us build for ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So, so what does the Tower of Babel have to do with the tabernacle? Well, this is the point. We see in the tabernacle the very opposite of what we see in the Tower of Babel. In the Tower of Babel, we have an example of man-made religion. We have an example of man seeking to bring glory to himself. We have an example in the Tower of their trying to ascend to the heavens, and what do we see in the tabernacle? God is descending to them. In the tower, we have man building something for himself for his own glory. In the tabernacle, we have God giving the instructions for man to build this structure for his glory. And we have in the Tower of Babel what I think we have in our culture so much today. We have man trying to create a God in his own image and come up with his own rules and his own methods and his own ways of, of worship. But what we have in the tabernacle is God giving specific instructions. Not for man's glory, but for God's glory. Again, friends, it's a reminder to us. It's not just enough to know God's Word. We have to obey God's Word. 
And it's also a reminder for us that God hasn't left it up to us to determine how to worship Him. God has given us His very Word to tell us how He desires to be worshipped. And in Exodus 37 and 38, that worship would come through the tabernacle, which ultimately points us towards the Gospel. And so let's look at that. You have there that picture in front of you. You have the Scripture in front of you. We see there beginning in Exodus 37, the first instruction that's being followed, the first thing that's being built in this chapter is the Ark of the Covenant. Now the Ark of the Covenant in your graphic there is in that Holy of Holies. And so it wasn't just inside that temple, inside the tent of meeting. There was that place within it that was the Holy of Holy Places. Only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies because this is where the presence of God was. And the presence of God was there at the Ark of the Covenant. Now Moses doesn't tell us here in Exodus 37, but we know from later passages that it, created, it contained three very sacred things. Now the first thing we know that it contained, the comes from the name, the Ark of the Covenant, was the, the covenant, the law, the tablets of the commandments, the Ten Commandments were there. And we also know that it contained Aaron's staff. Now Aaron's staff was set aside as special because in number 17, there's a situation where God's people are, are rebelling and there's dissension and division. And so God has them collect all the staffs from all the priests. And in order to show that he's really anointed Aaron, and in essence he's saying, Israel, you're my people, you need to listen to me. He, he has that staff start to, to bud. And so it was a miraculous act through which God was reminding his people that he was the one in authority over them. And so he placed, had that placed in the ark. And then third, there was a jar of manna. In our study of Exodus, we've looked at this, how God miraculously provided for His people. He dropped that manna from heaven. It was a reminder to God's people that He was indeed their provider. And so these three things were there in the Ark of the Covenant. That Ark was not to be touched by human hands after it was made. A man was not to put his hands on it. It was to depict the holiness of God. That's why there's these rings on the side and these poles for picking up the ark. It was covered with the mercy seat. And that's where the description there that I read contains those cherubim, those angelic beings with their wings spread out over top of the ark. And the only thing then that would go in the ark in the future would be once a year the high priest after making an offering on behalf of the people would come in and would sprinkle the blood of the offering on that mercy seat. The Ark of the Covenant was to be the throne of God and represent the presence of God. And then continuing on, verses 10 through 16 of chapter 37, you have the table for bread. And we've talked about this before. This too was a wooden table overlaid with gold. This was where the bread of the presence was to be. Uh, the bread of the presence was 12 uh, flat loaves of bread that symbolized the 12 tribes of Israel. Again, it was a constant reminder of God's provision for His people. And next, you had the golden lampstand. Uh, it, too, was made of pure gold. It gave light within the tabernacle, within the tent of meeting. The priests would keep it lit continually. It was a reminder of what we see throughout the Scripture, uh, that God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. And then there was the altar of incense. This would burn a sacred incense. The priest would light it each morning and each night. There would be a pleasing fragrance that would come from it. In fact, you can kind of see there in that little picture kind of the pillar of smoke coming there from the temple. Now, this was to be a pleasing aroma that essentially represented a man's prayers being lifted to God. All of these things were symbolic of God seeking to dwell with His people in the garden 
God wants to dwell with His people. In the tabernacle, God wants to dwell with His people. And ultimately, what we see in the Gospel is God's desire to dwell with His people. But of course, we know there's a, a barrier to that. And we know that something happens in the garden that keeps God from dwelling with His people, and that something is sin. Which brings us to the next thing we learn from the tabernacle, point two. Sin places a barrier between God and man. Sin places a barrier between God and man. And so, you see there in that picture of the tabernacle that the tabernacle was surrounded by barriers. In fact, you can bring that picture back up on the screen. There's a curtain that goes all the way around it. That the tabernacle itself was not accessible just by anyone. They had to come into the courtyard. And if you'll notice there in your handout, there was only one way in. There was only one entrance into the courtyard. And that was the one that God had described to them and that they then had built. And when they walked into that entrance, the very first thing they're confronted with, in fact, you see a depiction of a man and an animal there beside him. The very first thing they see is the bronze altar. And so you can imagine what this might look like. You walk in there with your sacrifice, and the very first thing you see is this massive structure that contained a fire pit. This is where the sacrifice would be made by the priest. You see tables all around it where animals are being slaughtered. And then that animal would be placed on that altar and would be sacrificed on behalf of sin. It was a reminder to the people that the only way they could have communion with God was through sacrifice. It was a reminder of what we now find in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. And you can imagine just the enormous residue and mess that would come from all that. All that sacrifice that would take place. And then these priests were to go into the, the tabernacle itself, into the tent of the meeting. They, they couldn't go in all covered in the blood. And so there you see there on your, your chart there, your handout, that, 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 that uh, bronze basin. That bronze basin was there, we find in uh, Exodus 38.8, because that's where the priest would cleanse themselves. That they would wash off the blood of the sacrifice and clean themselves before they could go into the tabernacle. Now, just think about what God's teaching His people here. He's teaching them that in order to deal with sin, sin must be atoned for by blood sacrifice. He's teaching them that after a blood sacrifice has been made, there needs to be a washing away of sins. He's teaching them an order that we still see in the Gospel today. We need a blood sacrifice for our sins. We need to be cleansed for our sins. And that's exactly what we see in the Gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, it's that pattern that we see in the book of Exodus. God's people are there enslaved in Egypt, and God rescues them through those ten plagues. But do you remember what that tenth plague was? The death of the firstborn. The, the Passover lamb. And so God's people had to offer a blood sacrifice in order to be delivered. And once that blood sacrifice was made, then He takes them through what? Through the waters of the Red Sea. Friends, we see that same order today as followers of Jesus Christ. We are washed, we are cleansed by the blood of Jesus. We are made clean by the washing of His blood. That is symbolized by the washing of the water in baptism. And so we see the same order in the tabernacle in Exodus that we see in the Gospel today. 
that there's atonement and then there is cleansing. And continue on, you see how there's so many things here that, that represent for the people the gospel and things that would teach them about God. And we see how they also remind the people of this barrier that sin places between them and God. Because no matter how renowned of a Hebrew family you were, and no matter how great a sacrifice that you brought into the courtyard that day, you weren't going to go past that pit. As a Hebrew person, if you weren't the priest, you weren't going to offer the sacrifice, and you weren't going to get to go into the tabernacle. Just think about that for a second. Think about being in a Hebrew family during the Exodus. Imagine that you're there back at your tent and you know that it's time to go make the sacrifice on behalf of your sin, your family's sin. You're very aware of your sin and your family's sin. Maybe, in fact, as you're preparing to take the bull down there to the offering, you and your wife start to get in a little argument. Maybe there's a disagreement. Maybe it's with someone else. Maybe it's just a bad day. Maybe things aren't going real well. Maybe you said the wrong thing, did the wrong thing, and now you're trying to drag this stubborn bull who maybe it's getting an inclination from the aroma coming from the middle of the camp of what's about to happen to it. And then on the way there, maybe you run into someone who you did some work for and they owe you money and they haven't paid you yet and you're grumbling, you're complaining, you're getting frustrated. And here you are trying to make a sacrifice on behalf of your family. They don't even appreciate what you're doing. They're fussing with you. And then you walk in and you're just surrounded by others making sacrifices. And then they go through that ritual with you where that, that bull is to represent you and your family and you hold its horns as the priest slaughters it. And it's to represent that atoning sacrifice and that forgiveness. But that's as far as you get to go. You don't go into the tabernacle. You don't go into the presence of God. And maybe you walk away from that courtyard feeling as defeated as you felt when you walked in. Wondering if that bull is sufficient. Maybe you have a few more thoughts on the way home and you think, I better go sacrifice three or four more before this day is over. Over and over and over again. Even as they followed God's command, even as they brought forward the sacrifices, they were reminded that sin created a barrier between them and God. It was only the priest who could go in on their behalf. There are still, by the way, people who today believe that they cannot go to God on their own or through Christ, or through a sacrifice, who believe they need to trust in a priest, in a pastor, in a person, to go to God on their behalf. People who pray to other people on behalf of their needs and their wants and their desires. And yet we see this is all not intended to give us a system where we then trust in the pastor or the priest. This is all to point us towards something much better where we can trust in Christ and in Christ alone. But the first thing we need to understand that is in order to trust in Christ, we need to understand the effects and the devastating consequence of sin. The Scripture tells us all of us have sinned and fall short of God's glory. That that means none, none can just walk into God's tabernacle in his own merit. 
The Scripture says the wages of sin is death. That means that we are separated from God. In fact, Isaiah 59 says it this way. Isaiah 59 too. Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Your sins have hidden His face from you so that He does not hear. And friends, it's not just that your sins hide God's face from you. Your sins hide your face from God. Because what your sin does in your life and in my life is it gives us great shame. I've mentioned this illustration before of, you know, imagine we could all hear each other's thoughts. <laughs> you know, if you're having a problem being convinced this morning that you're a sinner, imagine if everybody could hear what you're thinking right now, and then you, yeah, we all know you're a sinner. You know I'm a sinner. I've used that illustration a lot. Well, then, uh, just this last couple of weeks, I was reading a news article, and there's actually a device that is being created, you may have read this article, that, that you can wear on your head that can read your thoughts and then Google whatever it is you're thinking about. Now I'm going to go ahead and ask. Show of hands. Anybody want to put one of those on? I mean, it's bad enough that I know what I'm thinking. I sure don't need it Googled. I mean, again, would you sign up for that? I mean, just right now, just since I started preaching, would you want us to Google what you've been thinking about? Would you want to read what I... I don't want you to read what I've been thinking about. I don't want you to know what I've been thinking. You don't want me to know what you've been thinking about because there's things that just pass through there that remind us of the fallen nature of man. Of, of the wickedness of man. That even as followers of Christ, there can be some pretty dark things that come through these minds and hearts at times. The wages of sin indeed is death and our sins have separated us from God. And friends, what I'm giving you in that illustration is if people knew everything about you, you would be ashamed before them. How much more shame should we feel before a holy God? And that's what sin does to us. And so the point of these sacrifices was to remind people that there was a cost of sin. That something had to be done for their sin. That there had to be a sacrifice, a blood sacrifice for their sin. But it also reminded them that it was completely insufficient to save them. And that's why over and over and over again, my goodness, in some of these festivals and annual events that the Jewish people would have, there was carnage everywhere from these sacrifices. And it could never fully atone or come close to atoning for man's sin. It was to point them towards a truer and better sacrifice. That's what the tabernacle does for us today. It helps us to learn, point three, that God provides a way for sinful man to be reconciled to Him. See, everything in the tabernacle was pointing forward to the Gospel. God desired to dwell with His people and have a relationship with them, but their sin was a barrier to God having this relationship with them. And this sin needed to be atoned for, and that's exactly what Jesus did. Romans 5.8 tells us that God shows His love for us. He demonstrates His love toward us, and that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so I want to just take a moment this morning to walk us through the tabernacle in light of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. See, when you walk into the tabernacle in light of the Gospel, that giant altar you see represents the altar that Christ was sacrificed on. 
It represents the true and the better and the final sacrifice that happened once and for all where Jesus died in our place for our sins. Jesus is the altar. The writer of Hebrews says it this way in Hebrews 13.10. We have an altar, and he points out that it is Jesus. He is the true and better sacrifice that is offered once and for all on behalf of our sin. And so now we can just walk right past that altar because Jesus has paid the price. But not just that. And then we come to this bronze basin, this washing of the water, and we see that this too is what Jesus does for us. He cleanses us. He washes us of our sin. Titus 3, verse 5. Jesus saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. That that basin then represents the cleansing work of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the same thing that this baptistry represents in our church today. Whenever I baptize folks, I make sure they know the water in that baptistry is the same water in the rest of this building. It's not holy water. It's no different. It is symbolic. It's symbolic of how Christ cleanses us and washes us and makes us new. It's a glorious truth when we embrace the finished work of Jesus Christ. And so, in light of Christ, we can just keep walking. (laughs) We can see that altar and the price that's been paid. We can see that basin and that washing the Word. And then we can do what the people could not do in Exodus 37 and 38. We can just walk right into the tabernacle. And then as we walk into the tabernacle, we see how all of these things point us to Jesus. And we see that table for bread. And we're reminded that Jesus is the true bread of life. John chapter 6, verse 35, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me should not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And we turn to the side and we see that golden lampstand, and we're reminded that Jesus is the lampstand. John chapter 1, verse 9, Jesus is the true light. John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus spoke and said to them, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And we look over and we, we smell that, that, that aroma coming from that altar of incense, and we're reminded that Jesus is our altar of incense. He is the one who is praying on our behalf to the Father even now. Hebrews 7 says it this way, Consequently, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him, since He he always lives to make intercession for them. Not a person, not a saint. Jesus Christ is the one who intercedes on our behalf. And then here's the glorious thing. We're there in the tabernacle and which once was separated by a veil that kept everyone but the high priest once a year from walking into the holies of holies. It's torn. Jesus has torn the veil and we have access to the Father through the Son. Because we see there in that holy of holies the Ark of the Covenant. That mercy seat covered with blood. And we're reminded that Jesus is our Ark of the Covenant. We're reminded that it is His blood that gives us access to the Father. 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, He is the propitiation for our sins. 
not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Friends, what we see as we walk through the tabernacle in the courtyard in light of the Gospel, is we see how everything here was to point us towards Jesus. That's why the language of the Gospels reminds us of the language of Exodus. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, we read this, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. God dwelling with us. Jesus is our tabernacle through which God can dwell with man. John chapter 1, verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That word there, dwelt, I pointed out before, it literally means tabernacled. Jesus is our tabernacle. It is through Him that we have access to the Father. So that we can embrace the glorious truth of Ephesians 2, verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So what does all of this mean? What, what is this picture? What are these labels? What, what does all of this mean for us today? And friends, what it means is this. That for generations, people never got farther than touching the horns of a sacrifice and turning and walking the other way. But today, we get to be in this place of salvation history where we have full access to the Father through the Son. And the sad truth is, for many of us, we squander it. We don't care. We're so consumed by the world around us. We're so consumed about the events coming up this week and next week. We have bought into so much worldliness in our life that we fail to understand what it means when we sing. We are on the way to the promised land. And we let the concerns and the worries and the sins of this world cloud us so much that we're not even thinking about getting close to the presence of God. And we don't open up His Word and read it. And we don't open it up to learn from it. Because at the end of the day, if we're honest with ourselves, there's a lot of things that we long for more than the presence of God. And God in His grace toward us shows us His Word just like He was gracious towards the Hebrews. Remember what they had done not long before this? <laughs> hey, let's take our earrings and create a golden cow and worship that instead. And yet God was so gracious to them. He didn't wipe them all out. There was a consequence for their sin. Many of them did indeed die. But He still gave them His tabernacle. Why? Because He still desired to dwell with them. Because He was still their God. And they were still His people. And so maybe you came in here this morning not looking to be in the presence of God. Maybe even now your mind's so filled with worries and anxieties and things going on in life that you're not thinking, oh, what does it mean to really dwell in the presence of God? God is still being gracious towards you and He still is inviting you in to His presence through His Son. And the Scripture says we have that access in this way. If we will confess Jesus as Lord and if we believe in our heart that God raised Him from the dead, we will be saved and we will be brought into His presence. And one day, we will dwell in that 
presence for all eternity. But friends, I say this with all seriousness. If you don't desire God's presence in your life today, then ultimately one day God will give you the desire of your heart and you will be outside of His presence for all eternity and under His wrath. And my prayer for you this morning, my prayer for all of us this morning, is that we would desire God's presence more than anything else in this world and that we would live in light of the promised land to come and that we would repent of sin and we would trust in Him and we would take these moments we have to be reminded of these things, to sing of these things, and to respond to these things in repentance and faith. So if you would stand together and pray with me as I pray along those lines. Father, I confess that there are many moments of many days where I'm not longing for your presence. I confess, Father, that there are many days and many moments when I'm so overwhelmed with the things of this world, with things going on in my own life, in my family's life, in my church family's life. I confess, Lord, that there are many days I, I take my eyes off of the journey that's before me. I take my eyes off of that land of promise and I get worried about this world. And Lord, I can't help but think there's probably a few others that, that struggle with that as well. And so Lord, I just pray this morning that you would help us to set our eyes on eternity, that, that you would help us to live in light of your promises, that you would help us to see as we look at these pictures and descriptions of the tabernacle, Lord, that Jesus is our tabernacle, and through Christ we can be brought into Your presence and the glory of that, Lord. That there's no shame of sin. That You offer us forgiveness and cleansing. That we don't have to go through this repetitive religious ritual. But once and for all, Lord, we, we can be cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. And so, Lord, I, I pray if there's any years yet to make that confession and yet to repent Lord I pray in your grace and goodness that you would move them to do that now through the power of your Holy Spirit and I pray Lord for others who've already done that but perhaps like me at times have gotten distracted have turned their eyes off of you Lord I pray God that you might correct our sights and our vision today that we too might repent and that we might sing with great joy of the land that lies before us and that we might trust in you and walk by faith with you and invite others to do the same. We ask, Lord, that you would do this work in the power of the Holy Spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen.